Philippians chapter 2, and the title of my message is A Man for All Seasons. You know, one of the all-time classic Christmas carols is Jingle Bells. How many of you have hummed, hummed Jingle Bells, maybe sung Jingle Bells just a time or two over the last couple of days? But Jingle Bells has been around a long, long time. Did you know the song was copyrighted in 1857? Yet here's what's surprising about Jingle Bells. It was written in Savannah, Georgia. Now think about it. What does a resident of a South Georgia city know about dashing through the snow in a one-horse open sleigh? Well, it seems the song's author, James Pierpont, moved to Savannah after four years are four years after having moved down from snowy Boston, Massachusetts. Evidently, he wrote the song while reminiscing about Christmas's past with Miss Fanny Bright. That's when he penned the song. You know, Christmas is a time for reminiscing. It's a time for thinking back. We exchange not only presents, but pasts at Christmas time. It's an opportunity to recall old times and old friends and old feelings. It's a time for savoring not only candies and fruitcake and pumpkin pie, but sweet memories and recollections. Christmas time is perfect for indulging in some good old-fashioned nostalgia. At Christmas, we think back with fond memories on experiences we had as a child or maybe days when our kids were younger. Every aspect of Christmas brings back memories, at least it does for me. Choosing and chopping down just the right tree, breaking out all of the family decorations, trimming the tree, decking the halls, popping popcorn in the fireplace, stuffing a few stockings. Maybe these things bring back memories to you. Of course, it's always a special occasion to watch the glee in the kids' eyes when they wake up on Christmas morning and they see their presents. So many warm feelings flood our souls at Christmas time. Many people travel on Christmas, but almost all of us take a trip down memory lane. And yet nostalgia can be as deceiving as it can be delightful. It's been said, nostalgia is remembering the pleasure of sitting in front of a big fireplace without remembering who had to cut the wood. Here's another quote. Nothing is more responsible for the good old days than a poor memory. That's true. This is, nowhere is that more recognizable than among teammates. Just get a bunch of athletes together. The older they get, the better they were. Nostalgia is so deceptive that we can actually look back with warm, cozy feelings on events that at the time were actually painful. We might enjoy remembering the past, but that sure doesn't mean we'd be re willing to return there. James Pierpoint loved singing about dashing through the snow, but he obviously didn't care a whole lot about shoveling it because he moved from Boston to Savannah. Last time I checked, a one-horse open sleigh requires someone to take care of the one horse who eats and who stinks and who, well, you know what? Miss Fanny Bright conjured up pleasant memories, but apparently Pierpoint didn't want to marry her. That's why he moved out of town and moved all the way to Savannah. It's funny how nostalgic we can become even about the nativity story. We open our Bibles. We read it every year. 
They're nativity sets scattered around the house, even out on our front lawn. We teach the story to our kids. It's a familiar narrative that we look back on with fondness and faith. We're thankful for all that God has done. We love to celebrate His graciousness at Christmas time. Yet simple nostalgia is a far cry from commitment and heartfelt devotion and real worship. You see, God intends for Christmas to be more than just a nostalgic recollection. The Christmas account is more than just a sentimental journey. It's more than just a seasonal side trip from our daily routine. No, it is an example for our daily living. Our Lord Jesus is not just for Christmas time. Jesus is a man for all seasons. You know, it's interesting. Before the adult Jesus taught his first lesson, before the baby Jesus uttered his first syllable, God's Son had already spoken volumes to us. Just by the means in which he came into the world, he challenged mankind's most fundamental assumptions about ourselves, about other people, about life, about how to live our lives. You see, the fact that Jesus came into the world that first Christmas communicated loud and clear that God loves us and wants to save us and will stoop down to our level to lift us out of our mess and is courageous enough to brave our world. But how Jesus came also teaches us vital lessons. Not just why, but how. Jesus speaks to us not only by the fact he came, but by the manner or the style in which he came. And this is Paul's theme here in Philippians chapter 2. He begins his Christmas account in verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Notice how Paul begins, verse 5. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, you want to live your life with the attitude of Jesus. You know, at Christmas we celebrate the fact that Jesus came to earth. But it's how he came that's so provocative. Jesus came with a certain attitude. He came adopting a certain lifestyle. And God wants us to live this kind of Jesus style. Paul describes it in verse 6. He says, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Now notice this. Jesus is no one to be God. He wasn't striving to become God. No, Jesus was God. From eternity past... Jesus was God. He was God's peer. He was God's equal. Jesus was of the same stuff and nature as God. I love how J.B. Phillips translates verse 6. He says, Jesus, 
who had always been God by nature, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. Here's his humanity. You see, Jesus was this heavyweight. He was God and always had been. Jesus wasn't born a man and then later graduated to Godhead. He was God who humbled himself and became a man. He added humanity to his divinity. And while on earth, Jesus didn't lean into his divinity or use his God-like supernatural powers to make life easier for him. In other words, he didn't teleport himself from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He walked. Oh, he multiplied the loaves and the fishes for the hungry crowd, but when it came time for he and his disciples to eat, they caught some fish. Or they grounded up some grain in their hands and ate it. Jesus resisted temptation the same way that he expects us to overcome temptation. He quoted scripture. He helped, and he healed, and he taught, and he loved, and he worked miracles. The same way he expects us to do the same. Through the Spirit of the Lord that would come upon him. He wants us to live a life trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus took no shortcuts. Yes, he was God, but he lived as a man to show us how to live. Jesus became a man to show all men his nature, his style, how he approached life. He came not only to be our Savior, but to be our example. See, part of Jesus' mission was to experience human life from ground level. Jesus was God, but when he took upon himself the restraints of humanity and nailed himself to our plight, he stayed the course to the bitter end. Jesus wanted to truly experience what it was like to be a man. This is why he refused to use his divinity, his supernatural powers to make his life easier or his load lighter. He subjected himself to all the limitations, all the vulnerabilities that you and I experience. He tasted our predicament. He tangled with our enemies. He occupied our turf. This is why today his empathy is heartfelt. It's sincere. It's real. Notice in verse 7, Paul tells us Jesus made himself of no reputation. The term made means emptied. When Jesus became a man, he didn't stop being God, but he emptied himself of his divine rights and his advantages. This means that while Jesus was among us, he lived as one of us. In fact, he lived as one of the least of us. Oh, rather than live the high life, Jesus lived a life of service and sacrifice. He made himself of no reputation. He took on an other-centered attitude. When Jesus came to earth, he didn't start throwing his weight around. He didn't insist on special treatment because he was God. He didn't expect a red carpet rolled out for him or demand elaborate perks. I mean, just think about Christmas. For the first Christmas, God didn't even reserve the maternity ward down at Bethlehem General. No prenatal doctors or nurses were on call. There was no first class for Jesus. The Savior of the world flew coach. Imagine the most holy child. The inhabitant of heaven was the most down-to-earth person who ever walked our planet. He took the low road. And this is the way that Jesus wants you and I to live. Humbly, unpretentious, simple, unassuming. 
He doesn't want us to have to use force or intimidation to get our way. And this is why he wants us to live, as Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Is it? Is this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus? You know, you haven't followed Jesus far if you've yet to adopt his approach to life. If you're always pressing, if you're always pushing your agenda, if you're always trying to intimidate or manipulate, you're not really living the Jesus style. Have you humbled yourself? Have you made yourself of no reputation? I've heard it said, the ears of barley that bear the richest grain always hang the lowest. In other words, the most beautiful, fruitful, the most fulfilled lives are those that are the humblest. We're also told in verse 7, Jesus took the form of a bondservant. Jesus was a servant by choice. He was a love servant. He chose to be a servant. He served people not because he had to get a job or provide for his family. He served simply for the love of serving. You know, the great composer, Leonard Bernstein, he was once asked, what's the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? Bernstein thought for a minute and then he replied, second fiddle. Anybody can play first violin, but it takes humility to play second fiddle. Which reminds me, you, you know what the late Leonard Bernstein is doing these days, don't you? He, he's decomposing. Anyway. Merry Christmas. My gift to you. Remember the night before Jesus was crucified? The disciples were arguing among themselves who was to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And that's when Jesus set them straight. He told them, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And Jesus even gave a visual that night. You remember what he did? Jesus, who was the greatest among them, he, he took a basin of water and a towel and he, and he knelt down and he served his disciples by washing their feet. You, you know, it always amazes me. Jesus came to change the world. And as God, he was the almighty God. He had all the tools, all the power of the universe at his disposal. Okay, you're, you've come to change the world. You've got all the tools of God at your disposal. What are you going to use? How about some lightning bolts? How about some thunder? How about some supernatural hailstones? What kind of tools are you going to use? Jesus has everything at his disposal. He's going to change the world. What does he use? He uses a bowl of water and a towel. And he kneels down. And he humbly washes his disciples' feet. What was he doing? Jesus was flip-flopping the direction of success. You see, up until this point in the world, everyone saw success as an upward trajectory. But now, for the first time, men could see how you can descend into greatness. How the greatest people are those who are able to humble themselves and serve others. Too many people today believe that, believes that life owes them. Even God owes them. Friend, God owes you nothing. Any blessing, any shred of happiness you get from this life is one more than you deserve. We're put here on earth to serve, not to be served. We experience an abundant life when we give our life away. 
Lauren Sandy, the former president of the Navigators, he was once asked, how do I know when I have a servant-like attitude? Sandy had a wise reply. He said, by how you act when you're treated like one. That's a great answer. Oh, we all like serving when it makes us feel good or look good. But that's not a servant's heart. I love this point by Ruth Calkin. She says, you know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight, how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You see my genuine enthusiasm to teach a Bible study, but how would I react if you pointed to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old man day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew? When my grandpa couldn't take care of himself, my dad took him home to his home, helped him bathe, even got him up, took him to the bathroom, brought him back when he was done. Hey, when you stoop to serve when nobody's looking, you're never more like Jesus. Here's a great verse for the day after Christmas. Hebrews 13, verse 1. Let brotherly love continue. If you were shopping last week, you got acquainted with brotherly shove. Jesus wants us to extend a little brotherly love. And then Paul says of Jesus in verse 7, and coming in the likeness of men. Not only did Jesus lay aside the perks and privileges of deity and become a servant, but he took on the form or the limitations of humanity. Jesus became a man, like you, like me, so that he could inspire all men. Maybe you've seen this list. It's the ways that life would be different if the next U.S. president were a dog. Here's how life would be different if the president was a dog. The Oval Office would have a doggy door. The title Mr. President would be replaced with, Here, fella. You don't have to laugh too loud. You, you, you don't want your neighbor to think you actually think these are funny. The Washington Monument would become a hundred-story fire hydrant. Here's my favorite. A new law would pass requiring all motorists to hang their head out the window. But, but here's the deal. Obviously, all the dogs in America would rally around the president if the president were a dog, would they not? And this is why Jesus became a man. So that men and women would rally around him. He became a man to assure us that he understands and that he loves and that he knows and that he feels our plight, that he cares for our needs. He wants us to love and to trust him. And notice verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man. A man, mind you. Jesus wasn't just human. The incarnation got even more specific. When God became a man, he took a Y chromosome. It was God's design for Jesus to have hairy legs and stubble on his face and an 11th toe and a husky voice. Jesus wasn't, wasn't just the Son of God. He, he was the Son of God. He was a man. He certainly wasn't the daughter of God. And I think this is one more reason why men should follow Jesus. A real man humbles himself. 
Again, masculinity is about putting other people first. I love what Tozer said about humility. He said, the humble man is not a human mouse afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority. Rather, he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and as strong as Samson, but he has stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and helpless as God declared him to be. But paradoxically, he knows at the same time that he is in the sight of God more important than the angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. That's humility. A man or a woman who's truly humble isn't pretending to be something he or she is not. We're free to be ourselves as God sees us. You know, at first this can be painful because God sees our wickedness. And he sees our evil. And it's not easy to agree that we're more evil than we first thought. But as we sense God's cleansing and forgiveness and healing, it sets us free to be the people God intended us to be. Jesus humbled himself. We're told and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Hey, here is history's most courageous moment. Understand the strength of Jesus had been on display for centuries. Jesus was the voice in the burning bush that appeared to Moses. He was on fire ablaze yet not consumed. Jesus threw down fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus was the captain of the Lord's army before whom General Joshua bowed. Isaiah calls Jesus Emmanuel. He was the angel of the Lord who answered Hezekiah's prayer and came in one night and slaughtered 185,000 Assyrians with his sword. Over and over, the pre-incarnate Christ pulled a sword to slay his enemies. Even while on earth, Jesus showed unparalleled courage. You remember the day when he was sitting in the temple and he was weaving that whip. He took that whip and he bounced the crooked priest from the temple. It was a premeditated act of righteous rage. Jesus went ballistic for God. He did the same when he confronted the religious hierarchy in Matthew 23. You remember, he, he went off. He called them every name in the book. He called them fools and hypocrites and sons of hell and brood of vipers. There was nothing timid about Jesus. He was a manly man. In fact, when we see Jesus at the end of the age... He'll come as a lion, will he not? In Revelation 19, heaven opens and Jesus appears, not on puffy, white, cumulus clouds, but on the back of a war horse stomping its hooves. His eyes are wild with passion. His head holds many crowns. His robe is splashed with the blood of the men he slays in battle. Jesus swings a sharp sword to strike the nations. Pardon the lingo, but Jesus kicks butt, takes names, and starts breaking kneecaps. He makes war with his enemies. Jesus is a pacifist, all right, but only after he kills off all his enemies. And yet here, when Paul spotlights Jesus' masculinity, he became a man. He doesn't mention his strength, or his resolve, or his bravery. Notice what he says about his manhood. He humbled himself. You see, real men, they can throw a punch or they can pull a punch. They can step up or they can stand down. Jesus' greatest example of manliness was his humility. What makes him a man above all men isn't the pain he inflicts, but the pain he endured. Jesus humbled himself and became obedient 
to the point of death. Even the death of a Roman cross. What did Jesus do? He took responsibility for what was not his fault. He bore our burden. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin so that we could be forgiven, so that we could be set free. And this is what it means to be a man like Jesus. You become obedient to the point of death. The death of your conveniences and the death of your own happiness, perhaps. You, became, you become obedient to the point of inconvenience or pain or suffering or sacrifice or love. To follow Jesus, men, you stop whining and bellyaching about the hand you've been dealt. You start taking responsibility for stuff that's not your fault. You put yourself on the back burner. And you start making life better for the people around you. This is what being a real man is all about. A real man humbles himself in order to help others. Guys, your wife bears scars and hurts from past relationships. Her wounds and dysfunctions are not your fault. But now that you're married to her, they're your responsibility. The kid with the attitude she brought with her into the marriage is not your fault. But now he too is your responsibility. Do you resent the disruption or are you willing to obey God and do whatever it takes to bring healing and restoration? This is what it means to take up your cross. Right now you may be dealing with issues at work that are not your fault. Again, real men don't blame or bellyache. They go ahead and they assume responsibility and they work to repair the damages. Are you a man like Jesus? Will you be humble and lower yourself and serve and bear your cross? And ladies, this passage also applies to you as well. You know, I hate to say it, but too many women act like the real housewives of prima donna land. They think all day, they sit back and think all day of how their world could be a better place. Not the world, just their world. They're not concerned with their husband's world or with their kid's world or with the world next door, or the world too far down the street. It's all about their world. Women also need to be obedient to the point of death. Death of our expectations. Death of our own selfishness. Men and women both need to die to their selfishness and take up their cross. This is what Jesus teaches us. You know, it was Spurgeon who said, Every crown wearer in heaven was a cross bearer on earth. You see, life is not just about your happiness. Sometimes life gets hard. I've heard commitment defined as follows. It's the willingness to be unhappy until we work it out. That's real commitment. Remember that when it comes to your marriage. You see, in the end, joy is the byproduct of living a life for Jesus. When you think about it, why did God become a man? Why the incarnation? In the eternal halls of heaven, Jesus was always worshipped. He had always been celebrated. Angels were at his beck and call, in awe of his majesty. If Jesus had wanted respect or worship or glory, he would have just stayed in heaven. Why did he humble himself? I believe it was because he wanted to be loved. Could it be that the Almighty God was tired of intimidating and he wanted to inspire? Could it be that the Holy One wanted to communicate his heart, not just herald his judgment? Could it be that God not only wanted to be feared, he desired to be followed? And to capture our hearts, 
Jesus became subject to our hurts. Is there someone in your life that you love and you wish they loved you? Maybe a a bruised spouse or an angry teenager or an estranged friend? You desire a relationship, yet you're not even on speaking terms? There's this high wall. Well, could the problem be you? Could it be that you've been too busy demanding respect to earn it? Could it be that you've been laying down the law, but you've never stooped down to love? You see, it's not God's invincibility that draws us to Him. It's His vulnerability. You know, sometimes a dad can be so right that he becomes wrong. I know. A husband can grow so demanding that his wife fears him. She doesn't follow him anymore. A wife can get so insistent that she forgets the good that her husband does and the effort that he makes. If you want to be loved, why don't you try serving? You see, a little humility goes a long way. Slip on their shoes for a little while. Empathize. So what if you're right if you can't reach the people that you love? It's time for some of us to get off our high horse and take the low road like Jesus. He was right all along. But he didn't stay in that rightness. He descended into our darkness to reach out to us, to win us to himself through love. Rather than draw a line in the sand, why don't you pick up a cross? And if you humble yourself like Jesus, in the end, God will exalt you with Jesus. For verse 9 promises us, Therefore God also has highly exalted Him and given Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I love this. One day every knee is going to bow to Jesus. You'll have no choice then. Other gods will have proven worthless. Money and sex and power and fame will have become irrelevant. Islam and Buddhism and Mormonism and atheism will have been unmasked as a farce. Every human tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. In that day, every knee will bow to Jesus. What's surprising is that because of His humility, we get to bow our knee today. We can choose. Remember Jesus' ominous words in Luke chapter 20, verse 18. There He said, Whoever falls on that stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. You see, Jesus is the stone who will pulverize His enemies, but we have a choice. Surrender your life to Jesus. Fall on Him, and He will lift you up. The stone will become your foundation. But resist Him, and ultimately that stone will fall on you and grind you to powder. I want to close this morning with a story. Twenty years ago, God called Saul Cruz to work with the poor and needy in Mexico City. He launched his ministry by planting a church out on the edge of a vast garbage dump. It was a rough start, needless to say. There were some obvious logistical problems so close to a garbage dump. But the bigger obstacle in the work was Saul himself. 
You see, the people in the community couldn't trust him. He seemed aloof. More than one person called him distant. Until one fateful Sunday morning, a desperate young man barged into the worship service and announced that the sewage was leaking. Apparently, the sewage was flooding the street. And if something wasn't done quickly, the street would collapse. The floods would threaten dozens of homes nearby. To make matters worse, the city announced that they couldn't respond for the next three days. Well, Saul and a local engineer, they went to work. They stopped the traffic. They started filling sandbags. And for the next 15 hours, Saul spearheaded the rescue effort. At 3 o'clock the next morning, when the flow of the sewage had finally been stopped, Saul walked back to the church, cold and filthy. Several of the ladies had warm water waiting on the workers so that they could wash off the sludge. And when they entered the building, emotionally and physically spent, Saul suddenly broke down and he started to cry. He said to the co-workers, everyone come here. And they all circled up and huddled up. He said, we need to pray. He reached out his arms. Everyone knelt. They thanked God for delivering their little impoverished town. But you know, God did more than save the town that day. On that day, he established Saul as the pastor and leader of this church. Suddenly, Saul became a leader in that community. Never again was he labeled aloof. You see, once you wear somebody's sewage, you are connected. They know you're their friend. And this was the master's mindset. This was the mind of Jesus. This is what Jesus did to connect with us. On that first Christmas morning, he descended into our sewage. He saved us from a flood of wickedness that threatened to overwhelm us. And this is how we need to live in the world. This is how we need to earn respect and we need to win the hearts of others. When we humble ourselves, when we live an other-centered life, even to the point of plunging into someone's sewage, their sin and their habits and their problems, and becoming a servant to that person, when we humble ourselves to the point of washing another person's feet and lifting their spirits, sacrificing to help and heal, what are we doing? We're living out the mind of Christ. We're walking in the footsteps of Jesus. We are living out the Jesus style. And this is what Christmas is all about. You see, this is why Christmas isn't just one day of the year or even a season of the year. It's more than nostalgia or sentimental feelings. Christmas is about a lifestyle. It's a mindset that God has called us to embrace 365 days a year. Jesus came into this wretched world to teach us how to navigate our way around. You see, Jesus isn't just a a man for Christmas time. Jesus is a man for all seasons. I hope you'll make Jesus your example, both today and every day. Father, we thank you for this morning and for your word. And Lord, we do pray that you will help us, Lord, to live out the mind that was in Christ Jesus, to reflect this same attitude to the people around us, Lord, there may be people in our lives, Lord, that that we can't reach. There's this huge wall, but it's a wall of our own construction. That through our pride, through our stubbornness, through our haughtiness, 
through our insistence on always being right, we've never been willing to humble ourselves and admit our faults and admit our mistakes. We've never been willing to just love and serve and drop the walls and drop the self-righteousness. Lord, I pray that you'll help us all to be real and to be humble and to be servants and to be other-centered people and to love people even when they're not lovable. This is what Christmas is all about. This is what you've done for us. You've loved us, though we weren't lovable. You've been gracious to people who didn't deserve it. Lord, help us to return the favor. Help us to make a commitment in this coming new year that we're going to be like Jesus. That we're going to have the same attitude and the same mindset. Lord, help us to be the people you desire us to be. We love you, Lord. We thank you for working in our hearts today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.